0: There was good knowledge about Scrum out there, but it was spread too thinly over everybody that was trying to implement scrum and that's what got us to this scrum theater, scrummy name only, zombie scrum that is actually what people hate right now and If you look at everything that became too popular, most of the approaches that became too popular. The soup has been thinned out too much and you have these haters that hate what's happened in the market around, whether that's safe, whether that's OKRs these days. Every one of these approaches suffers from this. The approaches that don't have too many haters are the approaches that didn't really catch fire, which I think is, by the way, why there aren't that many haters for extreme programming? Because it didn't catch fire. There's less people that are just doing extreme programming because it's the popular thing to do.
1: Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast by Quantive. We talk about bringing strategy, teams, and data together to drive better business outcomes. I'm your host, Jenny Harold. This episode is about the role of OKRs, objectives and key results, in business agility particularly in the context of private equity and how to effectively implement OKRs in organizations. Yuval Yaret is an expert on agile methodologies and OKRs with experience in coaching and consulting a variety of organizations on their agility journey. With a background in IT and product development, he has helped businesses improve value and profitability through private equity deals and digital transformations. Here are a few things we talked about the connection between business agility and OKRs and private equity, the principles shared by various frameworks such as OKRs, Scrum, and SAFE, the benefits of dynamic team organization based on OKRs, the role of transparency, collaboration, and psychological safety in creating a successful environment for continuous improvement, and more. Let's jump in. So today, I'm really excited because I get to talk with somebody who has a lot of experience with Scrum, really driving agility home. Yuval, thank you so much for being on Dreams with Deadline. It's really great to have you here. It's my pleasure,
0: Jenny. Excited to talk about some stuff with you. We've talked about some interesting stuff earlier on.
1: For sure. Let's start with the interesting stuff, at least for me. It's like kind of an origin story, really short history on how you arrived at Being an expert on Scrum, OKRs, agility, and the things that you do today.
0: Yeah. So my background is in IT and product development. At some point in that journey, I found Agile and agility as something that helped with a lot of the challenges that my organization was facing, the organization I was leading was facing. I started using it internally, and after a couple of years, started helping others consulting, coaching, different types of organizations. I moved over from Israel to the U.S. back in 2015. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because at that point, I started to do more and more work with the business side of organizations, whether it's marketing people, marketing and sales, technical and commercial. And as part of that, what basically happened is I was starting to see more and more of the agile and even scaled agile concepts in wider more pragmatic perspectives and how they can apply to helping people and more or less around the time i started to also encounter okrs happening in those areas of the organizations i was helping or around in the ecosystem of these organizations and i started to help people work with OKRs as part of their agile process and eventually to start improving OKRs through some of the principles that they've learned work well in the agile process. So that's the long story short, I guess.
1: Very cool. So you've had some experience too in like private equity, I've heard. So maybe we'll launch with the first question. Since we're talking about business agility, you've worked with a lot of businesses on their agility journey. What is the connection between business agility and the OKR's role specifically in private equity? Because I think this is something we haven't covered before on the show.
0: Yeah. So when you think about private equity and yes, a couple of the organizations that I was working with were undergoing a private equity deal or were preparing for one or were in the process of implementing an investment hypothesis private equity basically take over a company and want to improve the value that this company is creating so that they can turn a profit basically think of flipping a house by improving the value and the multiplier so when you look at what's the role of okrs and business agility there okrs can be used as an alignment framework to make sure that the entire portfolio company, that's what's company called in the private equity portfolio. The portfolio company has a certain set of goals, and North Star that it's trying to achieve. OKRs are often used to align everybody in the organization around these goals. So what's the qualitative objective? And What are key metrics? Where are we trying to move the needle on? What would be the key results that we're looking for? How does that connect to business agility? So what you recognize when you look at all of the environments where I've been involved and other environments based on conversations I've had with people in the private equity, growth equity world, is there's a lot of uncertainty. They call it an investment hypothesis because it is an hypothesis about how we might be able to create value. But we don't know for sure how will we go about creating that value and will reality shift on us as we're trying to create that value? Which means we need some way to both align on what outcomes do we want to create and what metrics will we use to know that we're in the right direction, but also keep it open to learning about what works, what doesn't work and adjusting course along the way, which in a way is what business agility is about. Business agility is about the business being agile, being nimble, responsive to what's going on around it, to what's going on as we're trying to implement change in the organization, inspecting and adapting based on the actual results of what we're trying to change. Business agility can refer to moving faster when building products. That's the classic place where agile applies, but it can also apply to an organization that is trying, for example, to move from on-prem perpetual licensing to software as a service. Most private equity investors, growth equity investors, they a lot of them look at companies that sell things using perpetual licenses, and they prefer to have ongoing continuous revenue streams. So that's a very common playbook move. There are a lot of clear things you need to do, but there are a lot of surprises along the way on what works, what doesn't work. It's like throwing goo at the wall and seeing what sticks, what doesn't stick, and adjusting course as needed. So you could apply agility to the process of finding what's the right way to reshape your go-to-market strategy. What's the right way to work with partners? What's the right way to shape the bundle of your product? All of these things are things you could. Apply agility to.
1: Thanks for that. So, would it be fair to say then, really, OKRs can be used by any business, but the particular angle for private equity, to your point, is how do we take this business that has promise but may not be performing and is profitable, and applying management practices to help them get there, given the fact that the state of play and the environment around it, as with any other business, is unknowable and ever shifting. Okay. So then, it brings me to the next question. It sounds like OKRs could be useful in practically every scenario. I know individuals that use it. I know teams that use it. I know businesses, same as you. When are they useless? Mm.
0: The way I think about it these days is when you're working in the business, when you're operating a process, when you're just managing the whirlwind of day-to-day work that needs to happen. You don't necessarily need an OKR. You you should be monitoring a KPI. You should be keeping a healthy business. But if, for example, an airline doesn't need an OKR to run their day-to-day business, they don't need an OKR to manage the, the call center. They might need an OKR if they want to shift dramatically or significantly from one direction to the other.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like the classic example I think of is low-cost carriers where they changed the model entirely and some of those processes needed to change. And as a result, it became like measures of understanding that change and the success of that change. I think OKRs are definitely applicable. For example, the idea of onboarding. Passengers very quickly on a plane in a Southwest type model where you're herding cattle, like how quickly can you get them on this plane and get them going? And I think they rocked the industry as a result. And we have a bunch of low cost carriers here in Europe, like EasyJet and Ryanair that have a very similar practice. And now it's become common. And so KPIs make sense in that environment for sure. When are they most useful? Maybe you have some examples of uh, engagements that you've had with customers or clients where it's like, I started with here, like kind of the Drake rap song, started from the bottom, now we're here. And you advanced the ability for that business to really be performant. Like, where have you seen that applied the best?
0: Yeah, we can actually take that span between working in the business, that's where the KPIs are useful, OKRs won't be useful, but if we take it to the other extreme, working on the business, developing new capabilities at the business level, the boarding process at Southwest is one great example. Those are areas where OKRs are useful, because what happens in those areas is there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a need for ambition and there's a need for leveraging, unleashing people's potential. That's what OKRs are for. They're an alignment framework. Why do we need alignment? Because we want people to work in a direction towards a mission that is important to us, but we don't need, we don't want to, and we don't need to, and it would be a huge mistake to micromanage what people do to tell them exactly what to do in order to try to achieve those goals. This is where OKRs really work well, when an organization is willing to establish a desired outcome and the space for a certain group of people to seek towards that outcome. I remember working with a presentation tool company called Prezi couple of years ago and they had a very OKR-friendly way of managing the work in the organization. So they were set out around KPI teams. They had teams that were basically focusing on improving a very specific KPI. For example, conversion. So they had a reasonable level of conversion, but in order to achieve their business goals since they were a freemium software as a service company they needed to convert more people so they set up a team that had everybody that's needed that was needed to move the needle on conversion that was data science people that did analytics developers product people user experience marketers even finance people each team had a different focus. And every couple of months, they moved around the teams. They changed the teams. Why would they change the teams? Because maybe they've reached where they needed to be from a conversion perspective. So it made sense to look at, okay, what are our objectives right now? What are our OKRs right now? Let's create the teams that are organized around what we want to focus on as an organization. That's a very mature way to implement OKRs. You need the ability to shuffle dynamically your organization and create teams that are actually focused on what's most important to us.
1: Yeah, I think both you and I are probably biased here because (laughs) OKRs are part of a, a really big part of what we do day to day, how we help other businesses and business leaders and managers really get the outcomes that they're looking for. From your perspective, what are frameworks out there that you think are better than OKR or Scrum? Have you encountered them?
0: I haven't encountered anything that is better, but I don't think that's because OKRs are so great as a framework or Scrum is so great as a framework. You could probably define better frameworks But what I find in my work is that that's not the lever that would bring the most impact to organizations. I find that most organizations don't get anywhere close to the potential of the frameworks that they're using, whether those frameworks are OKRs, Scrum, Safe, or whatever, even people trying to use Spotify's approach for how to organize their organization. All of these models are useful. They share much more than what internally under the surface of the iceberg. All of these frameworks share a lot of principles amongst them. And most people stay above the surface they don't get anywhere close to getting the value and getting even an understanding, to be honest, of these frameworks. Most people look at OKRs, they look at the format of an objective and key result. They barely get to the point that they can form reasonable OKRs, but that's not the point. The point is the alignment. The point is the focus, not to have too many OKRs. The point is to talk about outcomes rather than specify outputs. The point is not to strictly cascade across the organization, but to use OKRs at the company level to inform the planning work that other teams do. The point is not to tell people what they can achieve, not to tell people what their KRs should be, but to have them share their intent of what they think is realistic and to have conversations around. That's the beauty and the magic of OKRs. There's similar magic in Scrum, in SAFE, in whatever approach that you use. If you disregard those principles, you're not really going to get the value. So, looking at, I don't know, the new buzzword is NCT, whatever, narratives, okay, fine. They're probably useful. But most likely, what you'll see is organizations that struggle to implement, to get value out of OKRs they go and try to do NCTs, they don't really understand NCTs in depth either, and they don't really get the value. They just move to the next shiny thing because it's hard to really do any of these frameworks well. The frameworks done well actually show you a mirror of, you know what, to get in good shape, it's not just about choosing a diet method, it's actually following it. And by just moving to a different way to diet, and buying a new book or a new app on your phone, you're not going to get in better shape. It's not through buying a Peloton that you get in shape. It's through actually doing the exercise that you get in shape.
1: I saw someone post somewhere, I don't remember who, so forgive me for lack of attribution, human out there. If you want to get good at OKRs, you got to do OKRs. If you want to get good at Scrum, you got to do Scrum. If you want to lose weight, you got to not eat the chocolate cake at one sitting and call that your calories for the day. Like, you have to abide by the principles of healthy living, right? In the same way for these frameworks. Okay. One solution
0: there. A yeah. People should probably take a look at Ron Jeffries, one of the Agile Manifesto signatories and one of the right. creators of extreme programming. And a Scrum trainer, he wrote an article a while ago, back in 2006, mm. right along the time that I learned about Scrum the first time. for the first time. He wrote an article called, We Tried Baseball and It Didn't Work. And that article really goes through this process of you want to do Scrum, do Scrum. You want to do baseball, but without all of the important things, the fun things about baseball, don't be surprised that it's not really working. So I recommend it. I'll send you the link.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. That's awesome. So for those who don't get to hang out with Yuval and I on the regular, I just found out that Yuval taught with the Scrum folks, professional agile leadership, evidence-based management training. Check it out. And so clearly Yuval, you're in it to win it with Scrum Because we haven't necessarily, maybe some organizations have scratched the surface of what it can do and how it can really help businesses achieve a level of agility that they want and seems to be very difficult to get. What makes Scrum so great from your experience, having seen it applied in different environments and organizations? Because there are some haters out there, and we're going to talk about the haters in a bit, but what makes it great?
0: Yeah. So the thing about Scrum is that it's a relatively simple and lightweight framework that's really laser focused on achieving empiricism. That's laser focused on choosing one area that you want to make progress on, an area where there's a lot of uncertainty around how to reach. We talked about business agility earlier environments where we don't know exactly what's the solution to that problem, so we cannot come up with the path forward from the get-go, define everything up front, and execute. When that doesn't work, Scrum provides a great way to, to move forward, to try something and adjust course as needed. Its structure is pretty simple. Select a slice of things that you're gonna try, run a short sprint, where you'll try to create an increment that will provide some transparency that you'll be able to inspect and adjust course as needed. There are a couple of accountabilities of that, that make, make it easier for an organization to shape the conversations around what's important, why are we doing it, that's the role of the product owner, that's separate from how are we going to do the work. So that's the role of the developers on the team, the people that would actually do the work, whether it's developing a product or what's nice about Scrum is that it can be used to develop the business, work on the business, work towards whatever sort of OKR or any sort of goal you have. It's just a concept of we get the right people into the room. They spend a time boxed amount of time to try to build some incremented we could actually see if it's useful or not, and we can inspect and adapt using a certain set of events that shape these conversations. But again, it's very lightweight. That's what I like about Scrum. It doesn't tell you everything that you need to do. It tells you the minimum things that would probably work for you. And for organizations that have no idea how to tackle uncertainty and how to work in an environment of volatility and ambiguity, It provides a great example of how to structure your organization, how to structure your conversations, how to create the rhythm of making progress in an environment of uncertainty.
1: I can't count the number of times that business leaders like to talk about the rhythm of the business. So that probably sounds beautiful to some folks out there listening on the show. To that point, it's interesting. I was talking to a bunch of my colleagues recently on the marketing team Like imagine starting with a blank sheet first thing in the morning and challenging the team to launch an ABM campaign in a day. Like that could be a goal. And the amount of creativity by having the right people in the room with the right idea of the outcome, a very clear defined outcome, which is we want to get a campaign out there. What can we do? Selecting target accounts, selecting the positioning, creating copy for a landing page, shipping it, having outbound cadences rolled out, creating ads on LinkedIn or Facebook, building custom audiences to launch it. Like the amount of stuff so that you can get some strategic accounts going in an ABM motion going, like totally could see this applicable in other environments like marketing. As an example, as a function. So here's the thing, though, right? You have all, you and I see this on LinkedIn. We read about it on the social medias. If Scrum is so great, then why do they, why are there so many haters? There's so many haters out there that are just like, oh, it's so outdated. It's too heavyweight. Even though you just said, Jenny, Scrum, in its essence, is very lightweight. Why are there haters? What happened to this?
0: Yeah. I think the root cause is that Scrum became very successful. After the Agile Manifesto was created back in 2001, Ken and Jeff created the Scrum Alliance and the certification around Scrum, the certified Scrum Master, and it basically spread like wildfire to the point that a couple of years later, A lot of people were trying to do Scrum. A lot of people that were classic, traditional project managers were jumping on board. Hell, even PMI now has an agile training that talks about Scrum. But a lot of these people didn't really get the essence of Scrum. They saw Scrum as just a different shape or form of the traditional project management approaches that they were using. They weren't applying the heart of Scrum. They were doing Scrum with more emphasis on how to run daily Scrums, how to manage working tasks, how to measure velocity, how to get the teams to commit to exactly what they're able to deliver because those people were very worried about plan versus actual. They were told many years that that's how you manage. You manage plan versus actual. You have requirements and you implement the requirements. They were doing Scrum with their preconceived notions on how to manage the work rather than the Scrum mindset of empiricism and we don't necessarily know up front. We respond to change. We learn from what's going on. We seek working stuff in order to be able to inspect and adapt. And that's more important than planning perfect sprints and tasking out people's work and managing burn down charts. They lost the message on empowerment, on the fact that Teams should be empowered to figure out how to do the work, how much work to do, how to achieve goals, and they should be empowered to actually inspect and adapt even during sprints to achieve stuff. And they weren't looking at Scrum as something that they should continuously improve. They were looking at Scrum as a template. That happens when more and more people follow an idea. If you look at Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm, Scrum has crossed the chasm, which means that a lot of the early adopters, those are, by the way, a lot of the Scrum haters these days, the early adopters understood the principles and started to apply the principles with less emphasis on the prescribed practices. That's, by the way, what you see with the Spotify model in quotes. A lot of the ideas in Scrum, but we don't necessarily need all of the structure in Scrum. Scrum became like a training wheel in a sense, and that's okay for a lot of people. The Shuri model says you start with following the ideas and over time you start to experiment with different ways, you try different things and over time you understand enough of the essence that you don't really need to follow a framework and that's fine. But the late adopters, those that were starting to use Agile and Scrum and Mass, they didn't have the right guidance. They suffered from what the late Jerry Weinberg called the love of the Raspberry Jam. There was good knowledge about Scrum out there, but it wasn't enough knowledge to spread, you know, to spread too thinly over everybody that was trying to implement Scrum. And that's what got us to this Scrum Theater, in Name Only, Zombie Scrum. That is actually what people hate right now. And if you look at everything that became too popular, most of the approaches that became too popular, the soup has been thinned out too much. And you have these haters that hate what's happened in the market around it. Whether that's safe, whether that's OKRs these days, every one of these approaches suffers from this. The approaches that don't have too many haters are the approaches that didn't really catch fire. Which I think is, by the way, why there aren't that many haters for extreme programming? Because it didn't catch fire. There's less people that are just doing extreme programming because it's the popular thing to do.
1: That makes sense. Okay, so let's go back a few steps where we were talking about evidence-based management, where you have so much expertise in this, which I think is awesome that you train people on it. How does evidence-based management fit into OKRs? How are they a complement? Maybe you can demystify this for some folks out there.
0: Yeah. So one way to look at it would be to say, well, the heart of OKRs is evidence-based management. What is OKRs? You set an objective, qualitative objective with a quantitative key result. The key result would basically measure the impact on some indicator, on some KPI or measure where are we and what's going on. That's evidence, right? And ideally, we should be managing based on that evidence, empirically, right? The key point in evidence-based management is we have evidence and we empirically look at where are we tracking. We use that to improve on an ongoing basis. That's basically what... EBM is, evidence-based management is. The problem with the way most people are using OKR, though, connected to the previous conversation, is that they're not thinking that way. They don't use empiricism as they're trying to achieve an OKR. They might be using empiricism in their quarterly OKR check-ins to see if they're achieving their goals or not. But again, most people at IEC are using that as a project management mechanism or a budgeting and control mechanism. Have we achieved what we said we will achieve? Yes or no? EBM, evidence-based management, means what can we learn from that? Should we adjust the direction that we're taking? Should we adjust how we're approaching existing OKRs. should we change our OKRs or our strategy altogether? How often do we close the feedback loop of reflecting on our strategy and how we're executing towards that strategy? EBM is not just in the quarterly cycle, it's on a day-to-day basis or a more frequent basis that looks much more like Scrum, talking about what are we doing right now as an intermediate step towards our strategic goals, Are the tactical things that we're doing making sense, achieving the results we had in mind? What can we learn from them? How do we want to adjust direction based on what we've learned? Evidence-based management is also managing teams through outcomes or via outcomes rather than via activities. We care less about the activities that people go through We care more about the outcomes that we want them to focus on. That doesn't mean that people don't manage activities. Teams still need to manage the activities that they have and plan what they're going to do. But the interface between teams and functions and the leadership of the organization or whatever way you structure goal setting and alignment mechanisms in the organization becomes more around outcomes. And empowering people, creating empowered teams, ideally empowered cross-functional teams that can close loops with minimal overhead that would actually try to achieve these outcomes. That's the impact that applying evidence-based management would have on an organization that is trying to use OKRs.
1: I think this is very important, at least to me. You use the word empowerment quite often since I've met you that this is a key foundational necessity, it sounds like to make both Scrum OKRs work. What does that look like? What does an empowered team in Yuval's book look like? And if you want to use an example of this in action, I welcome that because I think we use this terminology as leaders a lot and similar to how you describe we need evidence we need to be able to understand it and to inspect it help us to inspect and analyze teams that are really killing it out there businesses that are really are embracing this way of working
0: so as an example if we have a group of let's say 50 people that are trying to design a new razor for men okay you can choose whatever company you want to focus on for that, there's one based in the Boston area that's actually using these sort of processes. They claim that they're providing the best a man can get. When they're approaching trying to do a better job for certain kinds of men, they create a team. That's how they work in this imaginary process. That's how they work these days. They say, okay, this is the job to be done that we want to focus on. We want to help men get a better feeling during a shave, feeling like it's almost uh, you know a spot treatment when they shave, enjoy shaving in the morning. They're saying, okay, we have this belief that we can solve this job to be done better, and we believe that we can make money on it. That's the goal. That's the OKR right? Let's try to find a product that is a good commercial fit for men that we define for the team. But now what we do is we bring on board all of the people that we think are relevant. We bring onto the bus, into the room, all of the relevant people, commercial people, product research, product design, people that can design in AutoCAD, or nx designs people that can actually run consumer tests people that can you know talk about pricing people that can run finances on how much it will cost to make this how much would we sell it for what would be the margins all of these people are now in the room together and they're empowered to find what's the right product what's the right story around this product that would achieve commercial success that we believe would achieve commercial success we're providing guardrails for this team through this is what high level you would focus on this is the job we're trying to get done better for men we're providing guardrails around what's the business model that we use to to sell we need to sell the base system the platform and we need to sell additional razors there are a lot of things that are well-defined. There are some things which are open for conversation that can be, you know, the difference between hard point and soft point, but there's a lot of freedom for the team to go find what's working, what's not working. And for to go back to your question, what does empowerment look like? Empowerment looks like we have the team that amongst itself can close fast feedback loops, can do what's needed, can build a a 3D printed model, can design a consumer test, can run a consumer test, can learn from a consumer test, can design the next cycle. We trust the team to actually go and do that. We let them run cycles, and we provide them with frequent feedback and access to leaders of the organization for cases where they have questions, Where do you want to poke the bear around? Is this really a hard point? Can we actually get some flexibility on that? That's the sort of interaction that we want to have. It's not anarchy, it's within constraints, but there's a lot of freedom within these constraints. That's alignment with empowerment. That's where Scrum works, OKR, whatever. And one of the, why do we care so much about empowerment? Two main reasons one is in an environment like this with uncertainty where there's a lot of knowledge and expertise that is needed in order to actually find good solutions when we empower a group of people that together have the interdisciplinary expertise that is needed we get better solutions right we try more appropriate experiments when we ask people to come up with these experiments and let them hash it out with each other. And also, people are motivated when they have the right level of empowerment and autonomy. When people are micromanaged, they quite quit, if you want to use the recent buzzwords. People that have a lot of autonomy, empowerment, people that learn interesting things, and people that see the connection to the purpose, to the mission that they have, they don't quite quit. They don't quite quit that often. And that's why empowerment is so important for organizations to figure out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I was interviewing a wonderful woman once and she gave an example very similar to what you're talking about here with razors, where um, imagine you work for a company that creates potato chips. And... When would you expect sales of potato chips to be on the uptick? This company particularly found it happening in the summer months because people take potato chips to, let's say, a barbecue. It's something that you would naturally eat with beer, which you would do outside. And so when they looked at the amount of revenue that was happening in the wintertime, so it was very seasonal, they found that their sales plummeted. So they asked their team, "All like, right, okay, what can we do to sustain revenue through the seasons? Particularly, let's look at the winter months where you're going to be eating roast or things that are traditionally done at home. You're curled in, you're drinking tea, you're drinking hot chocolate. You're not drinking you're a beer and chips like this. They don't pair together. What would you do in that environment?" And they gave it to the team. And I think by your definition, they were unleashed with these constraints to think through from the people who designed the flavors of the chips to the team that priced the chips to the team that marketed the chips, all of these things. And they came up with this novel solution of what if we made chips sweet, which they're traditionally savory, right? We think of salty things when we think of potato chips. But they were like, what if we did like white chocolate peppermint like these absurd things that you're you're like grimacing but it sounds interesting to me and they found that they hit a segment in the market that kind of wanted the salty sweet they liked this idea of a novel chip that you can have a white chocolate peppermint chip with a hot chocolate it would make sense And they found that they were able to stabilize sales through the winter. And their marketing team had a blast in trying to talk about the new flavors because they even invited people who loved the brand to say, what should the next flavor be? And it created this amazing permanent program (laughs) now of maintaining revenue, unleashing the power of a team to meet a goal that was evidently great for the consumer and equally great for the business and obviously great for the team that got to work with it. So I too have seen like this really work. Share with us like a business scenario that's so messed up that you yourself would not want to be involved in it. And I think you've shared this with me before. And I think this applies to some people out there of where you're just like, yeah, this is not cool. I'm sure some people like it, but it's not for you.
0: For me, the real lever is whether there's the opportunity to actually improve. Mm. So if you look at the heart of all of these methods, there is empowerment, right? And if there's great empowerment, that's great. If empowerment is not great, that lowers the attractiveness. For me and for other people, I'm sure. It gets closer to quiet quitting. There's... Do we have enough safety to actually talk about what's working and not working. Without that safety, there wouldn't be empiricism. We would just be playing scheduled chicken. I don't know if you've heard of scheduled chicken, but think of back to the future, Marty and beef driving towards each other and who's chicken to go off road. The first scheduled chicken is similar to that. It's where there are multiple groups, all working towards one deadline. Right. Right, You talk about dreams with a deadline. Here, it's a deadline. I don't know if there's a dream, but there's a deadline. (laughs) Do something by a certain date. And imagine marketing as things to do, product development as things to do, sales as things to do, sales enablement. And nobody feels safe enough to say, I have an issue. Everybody's painting pink picture. They're just waiting for the first grew up to say you know what we can't do it can we delay so environments without psychological safety are environments where there wouldn't be transparency to what's really going on and it will be really hard to do meaningful stuff but the chance we still have is if that organization is interested in continuous improvement if that organization is willing to try different things If the organization is not willing to try different things, if that organization is just trying to copy paste methodologies, implement templates, if leaders are not really engaged in improving what's going on, I don't find that an environment which is conducive to, to progress and I cannot get passionate about that sort of environment.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. I think there's a lot of people out there who would agree. I was reading a statistic recently about the United States that by 2030, I'd like to say, all of the baby boomers in the United States would have hit retirement age. Like, it's like over 30. It's just an amazing statistic to think about, I think. And what's what we're seeing, I think, with maybe... The younger generations, certainly, I feel like this need to understand where we're headed, this want of understanding, like, why are we doing this? Why does this work matter? Like, how can I connect what I'm doing to what's happening? Can you imagine, by the year 2030, 73 million Americans are going to not be working. They'll be retiring and we need to be thinking about what that means in terms of the knowledge loss. Cause that's going to, that's a thing, but also up leveling the next generation to take their place in the workforce, which is going to be interesting. I think it just, it hit me when I read this stat, I was like, Whoa, I, if there's any time for a business leader, listen to me and <laughs> listen to you all, to be thinking about the importance of creating the right environment to address the challenges of today and the challenges that of tomorrow that we don't know about. This is how to be thinking about it. We have to do it. It's an imperative. So with that, we're going to wrap up with quick fire questions. I think this has been such a fascinating conversation, you Thank you so much. What's your dream with the deadline? I am curious about this.
0: Yeah. So I think it's very close to what you were just talking about. It really resonates for me. My dream is to help organizations create these environments for people, have an impact on how work looks like in organizations in the U.S. and globally. The deadline or KR for that, like your result, is work with a couple of companies that would guide the way that would provide more clarity on how do we actually do all of these things, provide even more case studies than we have right now in the next couple of years.
1: That's a really good one. Since you work with so many clients, Prezi being one of them, and a hypothetical shaving company in the Boston area, yeah, I imagine that you've encountered several strategy execution challenges with leaders that you've worked with over the years. Can you share with us like an example of one where you were like, wow, this is a meaty strategy execution challenge and how did they overcome it?
0: Yeah. So one biotech firm that I worked with last winter set a goal of basically improving their pace of running their search for a certain Molecule, substance, whatever, twice as fast as they were doing at that point, okay? Not necessarily from the perspective of how fast they're running through processes, but the effectiveness of that search. That was very important to, to them as a business to make this progress, leverage the right technology for it, the platforms, the human processes, But the key challenge around that was before even getting to the point that they have conversations around how do we achieve that goal, they needed to take time to fully formulate what did that twice as fast mean? How would we measure that? Are we measuring runs through the lab? Are we measuring the data set that we have? They needed to take some time To actually establish what are the KPIs that we'll be measuring for this. And I think this is pretty representative to a lot of conversations I have with organizations. Even the class that you mentioned that I ran earlier today. One of the realizations we've had is it's so hard sometimes to define exactly what we're looking for in terms of outcome. And what are the KPIs? It's so tempting to jump into execution, into activities, into what are we going to do, that organizations don't really insist on establishing outcomes. And when you don't establish outcomes, everything gets broken. People don't necessarily take the right actions. People are not inspired by the mission because they're told what to do. They're not told why. They don't have enough space to play around with what could actually accomplished the mission. This isn't anything new, by the way. Stephen Bungay wrote Art of Action about how the Prussian army discovered the difference between telling people how to do things and talking in mission that talks about why, what's important, and giving the space for the troops to actually figure out how to achieve the mission. That's something from the 18th century, 17th century, the Marine Corps talks about mission intent, the Israeli army teaches officers the same sort of stuff. It's not anything new, but it's not commonly used in the business world. Not as common as it could be.
1: That's a shame, but hopefully with this episode, we're changing things.
0: Maybe, Um. a little bit.
1: (laughs) So almost there. What advice would you give people who are just starting out in their OKR journey?
0: I think there's a lot of advice that we talked about today, kind of principles to to focus on. That would probably be my advice. Make sure you understand why you're using OKRs. Make sure everybody understands why you're using OKRs. Make sure that you... do OKRs with the heart of it, with empiricism, with empowerment, maybe look at evidence-based management as a concrete framework of principles and practices that can inform OKRs. One last thing that might help is uh, I wrote an article recently called Fixing Your OKRs that talks about these, these principles. So my advice would be maybe read that and assess where you are on these issues and try some of the suggestions there.
1: Helpful, thank you so much. And then we're about to wrap it up. What's top of mind for you these days?
0: Helping people do OKRs more effectively, using OKRs to have the conversations about empiricism, about empowerment, about designing your organization, with better, both use better operating systems for the organization, better ways to organize teams around mission and strategy for organizations beyond just the product development organization. So that's what I'm focusing on, helping companies work on, helping leadership teams work on their company rather than just work in the company.
1: I couldn't think of a better way to spend your time, given how much time we spend in work, that you get to spend it helping people connect with the purpose, meaning, and the value of what they spend all of those hours doing. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being on the show, Yuval. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here.
0: The pleasure was all mine, Jenny. Always fun to chat.
1: That's it for this episode. Dreams with Deadlines is produced by Quantive. You can find show notes and transcripts on our website, quantive.com resources podcasts. If you have a specific question, email us at dreamswithdeadlines at quantive.com and your question might be answered on the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.